Luke, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let us pray. Dear Father God, today we are here as a result of your great mercy. For you chose to look upon us by your great love and not deal with us based on our sinful, broken nature. In our flesh, we are no more different than the robbers, priest, or even the self-righteous man asking the question. Lord, thank you for your love that promises transformation now and eternal life for those in Christ Jesus. Would your Holy Spirit use the preached word today to challenge us to look beyond our own eternal life, convenience, and earthly possessions to the condition of our neighbor, so that we might grow in faith and obedience as we share your love with our neighbors, and our neighbors might come to know your great love for them and join us in being recipients of the eternal life we have in you. Father, we give, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you all very much for the reading of God's word and, of course, praying over us what we need. We need God to intervene for us to make sense of his word. And uh, so if you are new here, which many of us are, um, or visiting perhaps, we're in the second week of a four-part series. Um, every week we end our gatherings and we send people out to the neighborhoods, to the networks, and to the nations amongst us. Um, and as we do that, ultimately, we hoped that as we enter back into rhythms of school and maybe sending our kids to school or whatever it may be, whatever these, this season hits you with, whatever those new rhythms are, our hope 
as they begin to take seriously the call of Acts chapter 1, 8, which actually was, was something that was preached on and mentioned all throughout the summer as we talked about life by the Holy Spirit. And that passage, that, that verse is ultimately, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and that power will enable you to do something you've never been able to do before. Do we all want that kind of power? Do we all want to be able to do that kind of thing that's supernatural? And what is that supernatural thing except yet to be his witness? To be a faithful witness where God has appointed you to live in the time that he's appointed you to live with the people that he's appointed you to live ultimately. And so um, that's our call. That's our hope. And so today, uh, last week we talked about the first part of your neighborhood, which is your home. That's our first mission, ultimately. And then today, we're, we're, we're as, as Acts 1 does, it goes Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, the utter parts of the earth. We started at home. Now we're to go outside our home and continue to work centrifugally outward, now into the homes that are amongst us, in our neighborhoods. And here's the tension, I think, that we sense, is that we live in the suburbs, and everybody's life is good. Right? Everybody's life is good. You've got more money than literally 99% of the world. Um, you've got more comfort than probably the same percentage. And so we assume, because we can't see the need, that the need doesn't exist. Like if we were in urban ministry, uh, number one, this congregation would look a bit differently. But if we were in, ur in urban ministry, we would, be, uh, we would be able to see the needs on the streets. They would be there. You wouldn't be able to deny it. Um, they wouldn't be able to deny that they had a need, but we don't. We live in the suburbs, and things are a little bit harder to see. And so let me just illumine one major statistic that I think will help us see the need in our neighborhoods. From 2015 to 2021, prescriptions for antidepressants jumped 35%. I want you to hear that, and if you are one of those people that are on antidepressants or started antidepressants, I want to tell you, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so don't let anybody condemn you for perhaps using medical treatment just like I would Advil for a sore hip, okay? There is some mercy in medicine, and yet here's what I know. In that jump of 35%, if you dig a little deeper, what we'll find is that it's young, it's, it's kids, it's y'all. That's where the biggest jumps are. It's not in adults. It's in what's happening with our kids. It's a 26% increase for those aged 17 and under, including a 40% increase, get this now, a 40% increase for the prescribed of an antidepressant from those that are aged 5 to 12. What do you hear in this? You know what I see? You know what I hear? We're hurting. This is, this is 21. This is right after the pandemic, right? It's right, right during it. And here we are two years later, and we're still hurting. This hasn't let up. Counselors' offices are completely uh, full, completely packed. You go and get on a counselor's office right now, and what you'll find is a wait list. We are hurting, y'all, and we don't yet know how to handle all of the demands that are in our hearts. Our neighbors are desperate for the message of true and living hope, and you have it. God has entrusted you with this message of the gospel. 
And the question that I have for us, knowing just that one need, is what are you doing with that message? What are you doing with that truth? What are you doing with that message of true and living and real hope that our, our neighbors desperately need? Because antidepressants are one thing, and I'm, I, I hope you hear, I'm not dogging on them. Instead, what I know is that they're a band-aid. They don't heal your heart. They don't, they don't perform the surgery that we so need that's only available by the Spirit of God to make us new and make us right. And so Jesus tells a story today, one that you're probably familiar with, one that you've probably told your kids multiple times if you've tried to, to read those, those, those Bibles that we have, right? This one is one that's in the Bibles because it's easy to see. It's easy to understand. It's helpful to help us go, okay, there are some ways that we can actually help tangibly here, whether it's in the burbs or urban ministry or whatever it may be. But our neighbors need good news, and Jesus is here to tell a story to get us on the path to living a life that actually blesses our neighbors. So we gave you a summer challenge over the summer, right? I don't want a show of hands because it might, it might be too, it, it might be off. Remember the summer challenge we gave you, and we've given it to you many times over the summer. We've said, hey, summer challenge, go and get to know your neighbors, know their names, then kind of know something significant about them, and hopefully you have them over for dinner at some point, and you, you move from superficial to significant to having a spiritual conversation with them. And I would ask, but don't raise your hands, how many of you did that? Ooh. I don't have to know by raise of hands how many did that. How many attempted, Right? We can know there's a gap between the challenges that are before us, even from Jesus, not necessarily from this stage, and the life that we live. There's a huge gap, and Jesus is here to help us show the way. So you might be asking yourself, okay, it's a good cause. Like, I want to be on mission to my neighbors. I have no clue on how to actually start that. Well, here's some assumptions, two assumptions that we can make. There are two questions that are being asked in this passage. One is from a lost person, which was all of us before Jesus, and one is from a religious person, which is also all of us now, because we're here doing something religious in some way. So first, First, the first question that we can assume, which is in everybody's heart, which is actually a test for Jesus. And it says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Whether you believe it or not, or realize it or not, this is in the heart of every human that has ever lived. Doesn't matter if they're speaking it with their tongue, it is being said in their hearts. And I know that because of the ancient wisdom literature in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, God has put eternity in mankind's heart. It's there. You want to know about eternal things. You knew that in your, your lost state. You knew there was something churning in your soul that didn't just add up in your heart. You, you can remember this if you're a believer today. And perhaps if you're not a believer today, you sense that still. There's something else in this life. It's eternity that God put so that you could acknowledge a need that only he can satisfy. It's eternity that God has put in our hearts. You don't have to wonder if, if your obnoxious neighbor needs Jesus or your hermit neighbor that never comes out of the drawbridge that goes up. You never have to wonder if they are thinking about the things of God because they absolutely are. And so the need is there. They're wondering about spiritual 
things. And you would think, okay, well, here's a need, and now God's put you in your neighborhood. Now here's a person that can meet a need. And so we've got someone who's available and can do it, and then someone that needs some things. And you would think that would be such an easy match. And yet it is really difficult, is it not? It's very difficult, and I'll tell you my story at the end of the difficulty. But look, your neighbors know they have a longing for eternity. They just may not know it yet, or perhaps they've been hurt or disappointed or pushed out from a bad childhood in the church, or perhaps they've been pushed out with a bad experience themselves with an overzealous pastor or, or an inexperienced associate or whatever it may be. Like, there's all sorts of ways that we could make the excuse of people being the barrier to Jesus, and yet... They're here. They're hurting. We have a message that can help. The, pa- the, the passage goes on in this story, and the, the lawyer says, right, like, what, what can I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And you know you got to be on your toes with Jesus because he's probably not going to answer you. He's going to flip it on you, and he's going to go, I don't know, well, how, how do you read the law? Oh, man, he's in trouble. He doesn't know it yet, but he's in trouble. He goes, okay, cool, yeah, I got the answer to that. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and oh, by the way, love your neighbors yourself, nailing it. And he goes, yeah, Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, good, good answer. Do that and you will live. Only one problem that the lawyer here, the theologian here, doesn't understand. You actually can't do that. There's not one person that can love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with your whole soul and all whole of your strength. There's not one person that can, and if you thought you could, there's not one person that would. There's a gap here, and so it's no wonder Jesus is like, yeah, if you can do that, you'll live. This is actually right. If you believe in the law, go and do it perfectly, and you'll be great. And the Messiah, who's the only one that did that perfectly, is saying this to help him understand. He has a need that he doesn't even know that he has yet. That's the big problem that's here. You cannot do this. And that's the first question. What must I do? And I think we're surrounded by, I know we're surrounded by the world around us. If you're not a Christian, the only person that believes opposite of do this and you will and you'll live are Christians, even Jesus himself. Everyone else believes I can do this and so I must do these things, including the lawyer, which is why he goes on to say a second question. Because it says, now wanting to justify himself. And guess what? We all want to justify ourselves. We all want to know what the rules are to the game. If I am being judged by my own performance, I need to know exactly what to do and what not to do. And so he asks the second question, right? And it's one that says, who is my neighbor? He's not really wondering who it is that he's supposed to love. He's wondering, if I'm going to be judged on my performance, surely there's got to be an end here to my performance. I want to know who I don't have to love. That's really the question that's being asked here. And of course, Jesus flips it on him again. And he's not going to ask, he's not going to answer basically, um, who is my neighbor? He's going to make him ask the question, am I a neighbor? It's the same question for you. Um, It is the wrong question. I remember being in seminary 
And not everybody in seminary has great motives. I, this is shocking to you, I'm sure. Um, but when I remember being in seminary and, uh, and, and the good old Dr. Bingham would be going over the review for the exam that was coming up the next class period, and he'd go, all right, now, um, now remember that uh, uh, the doctrine and the heresy of, of Arius is going to be on the test, and then he would explain the doctrine of her- that, that heresy. Uh, the, the doctrine of Trinitarianism is going to be on this test, and this is the ancient ways that we would go through that. And without fail... Not one, but probably two people, one like 15 minutes, and then another one separated by another 15 minutes, would ask the question, hey, Doc, is this, uh, this going to be on the final? Is this going to be on the test? Until finally, I think he just had enough one day, as we went up to the midterms and in the finals, he finally just goes, hey, guys, are you more, ex- more concerned about what's going to be on the final for a class or, or how you can honor the Lord? You see, one will get you to the point where it's like, what's the minimum amount that I have to do? And the other one is like, I don't care about the minimums. What do I get to do as a result of this great love which God has shed for me? So Jesus is going to say and answer it ultimately by saying, hey, it's not about if, if, who are you supposed to love. It's are you the kind of person that will love others. And again, it's justify, or he's, he's motivated by the desire to justify himself. We want to do just enough to be able to get through to the end. These are the two questions that are before us that we can assume everyone is asking, whether it's our lost neighbor or us ourselves, like, do I really have to go do that? We, uh, over the summer, I don't know what you do with your kids for fun, but I like to hire them to do uh, manual labor. And so my youngest, uh, Moses, I hired him to pull weeds. By the way, if you're not hiring your kids to pull weeds, that's a really great way to just see what happens. But I hired him for $10 for an hour, um, and he made it 30 minutes all sweating. He had, his, he had his boom box out there. He had started as a party, and it was all fun. And then 30 minutes in the heat, which is like nine, you know, 95 degrees at 9 in the morning, he walks and he's like, oh, Dad, is that enough? And he, he, he brought me out there, and he's like, bro, did you start? But that's in all of us. Like, is that enough? I want to do the minimum to get paid. I want to justify my behavior here by doing just enough for you to be pleased with me. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is ultimately this. We cannot justify ourselves. We always go to our father and go, is that enough? And he's going to go, no. It's not enough. But look at what my son did for you. And if you would trust in that, then that's more than you'll ever need for all of life. These are the two questions that are happening within our hearts or the hearts of our neighbor. And Jesus then goes on to tell the story. And he says ultimately this. I boiled it down to two things. If you know me, that's a half truth. But we have two ways to live as he unpacks ultimately the bulk of the parable of the good Samaritan as we know it. I think it's better to be known as the good neighbor Uh, Within this parable, he's going to basically draw the the picture for us that we have a split in the road, several splits in the road as we're journeying with these fellows on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. We too can journey, and we have some splits, some forks in the road to take, and this is what they ultimately look like. Now look, we're pressed for time today, so I can't get into all the historical uh, significance of all this that are just fun and cool. Um, but I can tell you, this is a real road that the priests and the Levites would have traveled on a regular basis. They're commuting into work. This should sound familiar with, for us Houstonians. They're commuting from Jericho into Jerusalem, and now after a long day of work at the temple, when they're tired, 
They're headed back to Jericho, and they ultimately come across a wounded man in the ditch. And if you look at the details, you'll find that on this road, it's 17 miles long, it's really steep, it's got a lot of switchbacks, perfect place for thieves to hide behind boulders or in caves or along this treacherous road that's really curvy. Uh, it's on that road, they find this man, and what we find is this is a true story, or at least true realities, that Jesus is drawing upon to prove the point that we do have two ways to live. And so the priests and the Levites, priests being like head priests, Levites being assistant priests, they go and they see the man, right? And then the Samaritan comes along and they also see the man. And, and, and ultimately we start to see these first, this first fork in the road for us, right? Ultimately it's this, right? The first split in the road that you can see is that you can either serve your calendar. Oh, we're getting into the lives of the suburbanites now. You can either be a slave to your calendar, or you can make your calendar serve you. Everyone on that road that day in Jesus' story, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, were all headed somewhere else. They were all on their way after long days of work. They were all tired. They all had other things to do. And yet, the cat... The callous and the cold kept on after seeing the man. Now, again, these details are important because what we find is that the robbers stripped the man of all identity. They couldn't tell if he was rich, poor, if he was Jewish, if he was Samaritan. They had no, they had no clothes. So it really wasn't about their prejudice here as much as it was about their priorities. Now, I know what you're thinking. I've got a full calendar as it is, and you want me to add in uh, loving my neighbor. I don't know if you know this, but I've got multiple children doing multiple things. School just started, you know, and now we're even more busy. And I've got all these things that we're wrestling with open houses and curriculum nights and, and sports and cheer and volleyball and football. And if you do select stuff, I mean, it just never ends. It's just sports, much less any, any sort of fine art stuff, band and piano and like refining your actual whole self. It's impossible, you might think. Well, Jesus is putting before us that no one in here unwillingly has a lack of capacity. We are not victims to our calendars. We are willing participants. I know, it hurts. It hurts me too. And yet that's what we see, that they're all on their way to something. They all had other priorities that day. But only one stands out as the model for us to go for Jesus to say, go and do likewise. That's for us too. Go and do likewise. You see, um, here is the reality. Uh, there's a book that I've been reading called Next Door As It Is in Heaven. And they, they uh, put this uh, definition in there for margin. Here's what they define as margin. Margin is the space. That's what we need in our calendar. Margin is the space between our load. That's the burdens that we carry. That's all the things that are trying to get on our calendar. Margin is the space between our load and our limits. What we can actually do and what we can't do. Between vitality and fatigue. And to illustrate this, I want to put two slides up on the screen really quickly. And it's just the first four, passage, four verses of this passage. Here's the first one, and it's got what we know. It's, nice, it's nicely spaced. 
It's easier to read, although there's some things in the way. If there were things weren't in the way, you would be able to read them nicely. And then here's the next slide that I think most of our lives look like. It's the same words. There's just no margin. It's the same exact thing. And yet this is really cluttered and difficult to kind of make sense of at first glance. And most of our lives don't look like the first slide where there's proper margin, proper spacing, where we can make sense of the truth therein. Instead, it looks like that, and it's all kinds of wonky and messy. God is putting the fork in the road to say, which one will you live? Will you serve your calendar, or will you make it serve you? There was a great quote that I always try to quote when we talk about busyness. Corey Ten Boom says this, if the devil cannot make us bad, he will make us busy. It's not that you're like, addicted to meth or heroin, you're addicted to work and activities and significance. Me too. It's hard for me to live this too, but Jesus sets it before us. Which way will we live? How can we do this? We'll get to that in just a moment. The second split in the road is that you can come near or you can create distance. You'll find that the priest and the Levite all did, both did the same thing. They were going down the road, and when they saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, so likewise the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, they saw his need. They saw that he was half dead, the Bible says, and they passed by on the other side. But when a Samaritan, which would have been just outrageous for Jesus to say, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And when he, uh, and he went to him. You can create distance, or you can come near. Each person clearly saw the needs of the man. The priest and the Levite clearly created distance by going to the other side, but the Samaritan went to him. The easiest way for you and I to keep our calendar nice and clean and tidy is to not get involved in someone else's stuff. And yet, that's probably the first thing that we do. And it's the last thing that's on Jesus' list. Love God. And right up next to that is love neighbor. And so we may be thinking, like, for the priests that are coming home from work. Like, I'm a priest. I don't know if you know this, but I'm, I'm super important. And I don't want to get dirtied up by someone else's issues here. And Jesus is clearly making the point, you're not on the way to the temple where you need to be clean. You're on the way home from the temple. And so are you. You're not on the way to justify yourself. You have been justified. And so now out of this great love, will you share it with your friends and your families and your neighbors? We do this. We create distance by creating you versus them mentalities of politics, sexuality, socioeconomic differences, personality. Where would I? We don't celebrate differences. We judge them of our neighbors. That's split number two. Split number three is this. You can live from compassion or you can live from convenience. But you can rarely do both. All the men realized that caring for the injured man was going to cost them something. They all counted the cost of helping, but it was only the Samaritan who had compassion. If you don't know this, in the Bible, compassion is basically this like, it's like the, the innards your innards being disrupted and hurting because of someone else. And, and when Jesus felt compassion, I went back and looked this morning, every time that he, that the Bible says he had compassion for someone, it was met with the appropriate action. 
So a great example of this, and I don't have a slide for it for just a moment. I just want you to see the example of Matthew 14, right? Uh, it's when, when he's reading, he's about to feed the 5,000. It says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there. He's tired. He's a long day of ministry. He went to a boat where he was going to uh, just go be by himself, it says. He went into a boat to a desolate place by himself. Does that sound familiar for you? Just a long day, just want to go be by myself, just going to go veg out with Netflix or watch the Astros lose to the Mariners again or whatever it may be. Just want to go, just don't bother me for 20 minutes. But when the crowd, he wanted to go by himself, but when the crowds heard, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. At some point, we can go back to our own emotions of, man, I just don't have enough for that. We can draw deep to what God is giving us, the energy that he so provides that we would labor and toil and struggle for those around us and enter into those spaces with compassion. The fourth split on the road is this. You can do it alone or you can enlist others to help. You notice the, awkward, the most awkward thing that the Samaritan did right here is that he left the care of the wounded man to someone else. Something that was just new for me this week of just listening and, and learning still, going, what a weird anti-American thing to do. That you wouldn't just do everything and, and make sure that you canceled all the things, because that's usually what we think when we're starting to talk about entering in compassionately for the sake of our neighbors, is that it's going to take all this sacrifice when really it's like we do what we can with what we have, we reach our limits, and then we hand it off to someone else that we either pay or recruit, and that's okay. He, he provides two denarii, which is about two months of living expenses for him, and he says, hey, if this isn't enough, I'm gonna come back and I'll pay you the rest. What would it look like for us to enlist the help of our church or our neighbors to be able to meet some needs in a real significant way, not just to try and do it on our own, because that's not the way of the good neighbor, but to invite others into that space, to help ease the burden where we can all truly, as a family, make the difference that God's calling us to make. All right, that's the parable. Those are the lessons. Those are the splits in the road. Now, where do we go? How do we do this? And I would just end here with saying this. Start with what you have. Many of you know this. I've told this story many times about how my difficulty in living this out. When we first started The Grove, I remember being asked multiple times in church planting assessments. If you don't know this, we get assessed as church planters. Correction, you should get assessed if you're going to be a church planter where they ask you all kinds of hard questions about your life, your ministry, your habits. And one of the questions they usually ask is, give me five names of the people you're trying to reach right now that are lost. And I went, I mean, I can get to one. Well, you said you love the lost, and that's why you're planning this church. So tell me how you love the lost. And I was like, man, I got to tell you, I don't think I love the lost as much as I say I love the lost. So there was an orientation that needed to happen in my heart, and after living on Green Falls uh, in, in, in Pecan Lakes just down the road for six years, I saw my neighbor out in the front yard, and Moses was but a babe, and I had him in my arms, and I remember yelling at her daughters like years ago for doing some inappropriate things in the front yard. That's the only conversation I had with my neighbors for six years. And I walked across the street, 
and I'll hold my new baby in my arms, because you can't be mad if I got a cute baby in my arms. <laughs> Maybe you have a puppy, but you don't have children. Bring the puppy over. Everybody loves a puppy. But I walked over, and I said, hey, I'm really sorry that I haven't come and introduced myself to you before. I've lived here for six years. And she interrupted me, and she goes, I know who you are. You're a pastor. <gasps> and I said, you're right, and I'm sorry. I've been so busy doing church, I've actually ceased and forgot to be the church. And I, I apologize. That's ah, fine. What do you want? And I was like, I just want to come over and introduce myself to you. This is Moses. My name is Lance. We live here. Here's the rest of my family. She's like, oh, okay, great. Didn't really want to do much, except I saw a Bernie Sanders light and, and sign in her window, and I thought, well, here's an easy way to just chat with your neighbors. Why not just talk about politics? <laughs> and I said, big Bernie fan? Oh, yeah, let me tell you. And we just went down the rabbit trails that we went down. And you know what? The next time I saw her, she actually waved at me. The next time I saw her, we had more conversation until they moved away. It's going to take you owning the awkward Walking next door, offering cookies six years too late after someone moved in. That's what this is going to take. It's going to take you reorienting your calendar, not adding things to your calendar, but entering into your calendar as a missionary, changing how you do your calendar. Give you another example. Walking through our neighborhood, again, early on in the Grove, walking around our neighborhood, we then just started to prayer walk our neighborhood. And my wife, who's better at this than me, saw somebody in somebody's backyard, and he had like an, he just, he was from India, obviously. He was wearing things from India. He, everything about his, his, his self was from India. And Melissa goes, hey, that guy looks like he's from India. You've been to India. Let's go talk to him. And I was like, are you kidding me? No, I don't want to do this right now. So we go over there, and she introduces ourselves to him, and he couldn't speak English. He was just in the backyard doing his prayer walk or whatever he was doing. He went in, got his son. His son was a Hindu. His daughter-in-law, brand new, brand new baby, was, uh, had grown up a Lutheran. We got to know this family over time. They ended up hosting our neighborhood group for a time. We ended up actually coming in this room and dedicating their son to King Jesus. And they're not, like, not believers, but she was, grew up Lutheran. She wanted to do something that she was already done to her. That she wanted to get, you know, she wanted to baptize her child. Well, I don't do that. We'll, we'll, we'll send, we'll dedicate. It was an opportunity for us to live on mission, and we ended up integrating them into our lives, our normal rhythms, until they ended up moving away to Denver. Prayer walk your neighborhood, perhaps. So there's some things here that we can do that are a lot easier than we might think. Some other ideas: play or move your barbecue pit into your front. Yard. Aaron Cotton, who used to be family discipleship pastor here, his missional life took off with his neighbors when he moved his barbecue pit that he would smoke on on a Friday night from his backyard to his front yard, and everybody just wanted to come and smell it. What an opportunity. What an opportunity. Go to the front yard. Talk to your neighbors who come by with curiosity. Pray for your neighbors. Do you pray for your neighbors? We just signed up for a piece of software as a church. We're going we're gonna to basically introduce over the next few weeks. That's um, called Bless Every Home. If you've been a part of it, awesome. We're going to enlist y'all to help us be on a regular prayer schedule for your neighbors. It's unbelievable piece of software to help you be reminded to pray for your neighbors. 
Pray for them. Invite them over for dinner. Truly listen to their stories with curiosity, not judgment. Well, I don't believe in that, so that's not going to work. No. What makes you, what makes you believe in that? What, what's so attractive for you in that? Just ask some questions of folks. Enter into your neighborhoods with a posture of blessing. Genesis 12, 2 says, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. When I was studying over the week about being a blessing, I came across a video from Dave Ferguson, who is a church planning wizard, basically, and he talked about this study, this doctoral study um, of, of these missionaries that went to Thailand, two groups one that sought to convert people and one that sought to bless them. One that thought just to bring the word, to bring the gospel in word, and the other one to bring the gospel in deed and word. And the people that went with a posture of blessing had 50 times more conversions, 50 times more conversions than those who just went to share the gospel with their mouth. You're gonna have to drive through your neighborhood and see who needs help. You're going to have to go asking the Lord, where do you want me to intervene in this place? You're going to have to go on Facebook and invite people like, hey, I would love to come and pray for you. Can I pray for you this week? Private message me. I'd love to, is it DM or PM? I can't, I don't know. I'm like back in AOL Messenger days. Uh, like, what do we do? I don't know. But, but DM me your prayer request. I'll show up at your house. I'll pray in your front yard, whatever it may be, or I'll do it from here. We're going to have to be awkward and enter into these spaces so that we can bless others around us. Here's the deal. Do you remember the question at the end that Jesus asked? I'll also ask here as we end, if I can find where I was. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor, the kind of person that at least tries to live out of a justified state? of loving God and loving neighbors. Which of you do you think proved to be a, a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And if you can identify that, which I think we all can by now, Jesus then says to us, go and do likewise. I really struggled with how to end this sermon. I really thought about bringing all these books that I've read about how this can make it easy for you. Some steps on how to do this. Some missional rhythms that we've preached on over the years. And you know what I realized? There's not a book that I could show you, including this one, that would actually motivate you to love your neighbor as Christ has loved you. You know what it takes? The heart of compassion. It takes a heart of mercy that God will give you if you ask him and not be burdened by the inconvenience of it all or the cost of it all, but the call for all of us to be compassionate and to be merciful towards those we now know need the message of hope more than anything. Let's pray for that. Our Father, we're grateful for your love and care for us. Would you help us? Help us remember that only you can create these hearts in us. And perhaps as we pray and sing and, and eventually go pick up our kids, we need to remember one thing. So by your spirit, would you remind us? By your spirit, would you remind us, Lord, 
that we were once that wounded man or woman in the, in the ditch. Help remind us that we were once half dead. We were physically alive but spiritually dead. Help us remember that you are the true and better good Samaritan who saw our need, came near to us when you left heaven, bound up our wounds, not with oil and wine, but with, with the body and the blood. Help us remember your compassion that you wanted to, to rest, but when you saw our deep need, you had compassion on us. And you met our need with action. Help us remember, Lord. It's, it's as I have loved you, so you love one another. So, Lord, let us remember how you have loved us as those who are in the ditch, in need, beaten by the world, bloodied by our enemy, torn down by our own fleshly desires, and you entered into that space, took us upon yourself so that you would walk the road to Jericho. On our behalf, taking us then into the inn of your father's home where you've promised to prepare a room for us to care not just for two months, but for all of eternity. Help us remember your beautiful faithfulness, your costly, compassionate self to us. And Holy Spirit, give us a heart that would do the same for our hurting neighbors who aren't just hurting but they're destined for hell without the message of hope that you've entrusted to your people. Help us see the gravity of that and the beauty of the responsibility, O oh Lord. We trust you. We can only do these things because of your presence and power, and so we plead with you, O oh Jesus. In your name do we pray, amen.